All right, so we are continuing with our series of the seven women prophetesses, and we are up to the Vaira Hanavia. Just a li- very brief background after Moshe Rabbeinu's passing, Yeshua was appointed as the the uh, the Mamala Makim, the one who. Someone was on the front door. The one who took over the place of Moshe Rabbeinu. And all of the Jewish people felt how they were under his leadership. I would say very much like we, you know, in this final generation of Golos and the past few generations that we merit, and we merited also to have a Rebbe, which is basically the tzaddik of the generation. Moshe Rabbeinu was the leader of all of the tribes, as was later Yehoshua. And from the passing of Yehoshua until the appointment of kings, and I know that for some reason men learn very little about it in comparison to women, but just a basic outline is we don't learn Nach in Yeshiva as much as women, I think, spend a lot of time learning Nach. But there was the era known as the era of the judges, and what was unique about that era is that there was not a centralized leadership position. There wasn't one leading all. There were people who felt that they are under God's leadership. And what people needed is to have a teacher and someone who will not only enlighten them, but ideally also inspire them to do what God wants because God is our king. It's very spiritual. It actually worked for almost 400 years. There wasn't a leader for the Jewish people. And the name of those who were the judges or the teachers were called the Shoftim. Interestingly, in Pirkei Yavis, they have another name. Many people are familiar with the first chapter in Pirkei Yavis. Moshe Kibbal Torah Misinai, and then to Yeshua, and then and then very good. Okay, okay, go, 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 good. Oh, so I want to say is that you'll notice that over there the Shoftim are not mentioned, and the Nevi'im are the names that we are giving to the prophets that were in the times of the kings. And between Yeshua and the Nevi'im, we have the Zekanim. That's the order. Yeshua gave it over to the elders is a name that's used for the, for the judges. And they were called elders or shoiftim because just like in a healthy society, the elders are the ones that have more life experience so therefore they enlighten us. And if we merit, we have elders who lived an upright life and therefore they inspire us to follow their suit. An elder. Or as it says in Chazal, that the word old doesn't mean old biologically, but zakin is zeh shekana chachma. A wiser, a enlightened person. And we didn't have one, there wasn't one overall. Having said that, and actually the Gemara makes a point to tell us, that God made it so that every tribe provided at least one judge. There wasn't a single tribe that did not have a shoifet from there, from their clan, which was good. And there were at times many judges at the same time. We were not looking for a one leader for all. We were simply, it's mamish like American Jews right now. It's not organized like you have it, let's say in England, there's the chief rabbinate or you have it in Australia or you have it in other, you have uh, you know, every, every group. It tries to get a, we gather and we try to get someone who can teach. And there doesn't need to be, there's no chief rabbi here in Los Angeles. And there's no need for that. That's more or less the structure that we had in the time of the shoiftim. And no doubt from the greatest, if not the greatest of all of the judges, is the voidim. And we're not going to focus here about her ability of, of enlightening. We'll get to that in a moment. But the Gemara, again, we're going through the seven. How do we know that she was a prophetess? Because it says, Because it says that she was a woman who had the ability of being a prophetess. And she was the wife of Lapidus. Now, it's not unusual for the Torah to mention who's whose spouse. Here, it's very unusual. It's not usual. Lapidus is an unknown person. No one knows anything about him. Nach doesn't write anything about him. She was the leader. She was the Shefetis. 
if anything, if scripture would have been writing, if it would have written anything about Lapidus, then it should have said Lapidus was the husband of the Vaidam, who was the known character. Which is why the Gemara right away makes a point to tell you that even though, yeah, the Pshat is, is that she was the wife of Lapidus, there is a whole different meaning in the wife of Lapidus, and the wife of Lapidus is in reference to her, not to her husband. And the Gemara says Lapidus comes from wicks or torches. That's the meaning of a Lapid, Lapid Eish. She was the woman of torches. Meaning, she would manufacture, or with her hands, or she had a system, she had a factory. She would provide the wicks for the Migdash. There wasn't really a Migdash. The Migdash is a generic word. It means the Mishkan. Mishkan Shilai stood in her time. And she had the schos of providing wicks for the Menoira in the Beis HaMikdash. And as we're going through our series, there was something about this. In other words, if one were to ask, okay, what was the unique um, power of the Vaira in which she was outstanding and which she continues to inspire all the Jewish people, it's no doubt something connected to Asius Lapidus, meaning that she made wicks for the Mishkan. What does that mean? What does that represent? So I want to give a very important Hasidic general concept. You heard it many times. But it's really worth reviewing. And even in Chabad Hasidus, there are different structures that are moved around in different places. But let's... The Hagdama. The Hagdama is, is, that, is that people should aspire, or at least aspire to aspire to have a real relationship with God. Many people will even tell you that's the point of Hasidus. Like, what did the Baal Shem Tov come over here for? He wasn't here to teach um, the Gemara better. He did that also. But that was not the main purpose of Hasidus. Prior to Hasidus, we had great Torah giants since the times of Moshe Rabbeinu. And he wasn't just another outstanding scholar, even if he was the greatest of scholars. But that's not what Hasidus primarily came here to do. Hasidus really wanted to inspire, and it succeeded in inspiring people like us. Something that we have, part of the, the, the good of our culture is that people, I always say this, LA is a spiritual place, people really want to be connected to something greater than them. And Yidin, who know, who know that God is that which is greater than us, so we want to be connected to God. And we are very much aware that you can have an observant Jew, really observant, who doesn't have a real connection to God. Meaning, from God's perspective, they have. They're doing what God wants. God has nachas. But the, we, the, the observant Jew, won't always feel connected to God. Actually, many times a person gets very frustrated. That's a typical Rebbe issue. Rebbe, I'm doing everything right. I'm keeping the kosher. I'm keeping the Shabbos. I'm going through the sacrifices. I'm not perfect, but I'm more or less, you know, I'm on the right track. I'm not feeling any of it. And the Baal Shem Tov came here to inspire us to want to have, to desire to have a connection to God. And there are certain paths that he outlaid for us that if we follow them or follow them better, we will succeed. Okay. And from the many general tools that Hasidus will underline, that this is how you'll feel it. You'll get an experience with God. So I want to speak about davening, learning, and joy. Which I very much spoken about. When I speak about davening, we're not speaking about only reading the Siddur, which is great, which is great, which is infinitely better than not. But we're speaking about, again, the ideal prayer that at least every now and then, while we're making the effort of davening, whether you daven once a month or you daven once a day, during the, a lot of time or a little time, you're trying to talk to God. We just know that even in human relationships, you know, communication is a big part of a successful marriage because you're communicating. Just talking, just talking. No, it's taka talking to God. You're not talking to you, you're talking to God. Just talking to God creates a relationship. And how much more if you understand what you're saying? Even better. And how much more if there is a, a, a slower conversation with God trying to, trying to get there, trying to get, you know, there's a beautiful story in, in Lubavitch, which was a teeny village, teeny village. The shul was very small, but in the village Lubavitch, there was a lot of outdoor space, like Aden. Yeah, so even if it's not beautiful, yet it's going to be beautiful, but there's space. And then Lubavitch moved to Rostov. 
the Rebbe Rashab did not want it to be under the domain of the communist government, and he moved away from Lubavitch, and he set up shop in a city, relatively city compared to a village. And, you know, some people love city life, some people love village life. So not only was it the shift that you're like in a city, but the headquarters was in an apartment building. Not even in your own storefront. Can you imagine going to the headquarters of Lubavitch, you're going up on a staircase, and it's just another apartment. And everyone is like jam-packed one near the other. The downsides for me are clear. The upside was, is that you can really hear what the other people are saying. And when, you're, and when you are neighboring greater people, you are hearing a lot of great things. So there were certain statements that the Rebbe would say, maybe even for himself, that people did not overhear. But because of the whole shul being like packed into a little room, so this is what happened, just a beautiful story, a very meaningful story, that there was a chassid, Ansim chassid, this is so common, that during Akafis, the chassid began to cry. And let me tell you what I mean to say common. Common is, is that we're not that far away already from Yom Tif. And, and just the stress of, oh my God, it's Rosh Hashanah, that almost blocks people of feeling Rosh Hashanah. If we would get to choose when we want to make Rosh Hashanah, it would be a lot easier to connect to the spirit of Rosh Hashanah. The fact that it's forced, like you can't force emotions. You can force behavior. And that's the paradox of Yiddishkeit, that God is telling us, no, now you're keeping Rosh Hashanah. Now you're going to do tshuva. Now you're going to rejoice. It's very difficult. And it, it's common, not only for, an hour, for hundreds of maybe thousands of years, that you know when you finally got into Rosh Hashanah mode? Some chastayda. So this guy, you know, we're trying, listen, we're doing the things, we're going through the motions, but the chassid, on some chastayda, all of a sudden, I don't know whether, whether it was Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, he begins to cry with tears of tshuva. It was a beautiful spiritual moment, but it wasn't related to the joy of some chastayda. So the Rebbe Rashab said, and this, is, this was not a, first of all, it was a, he said it quietly. We overheard him saying, and it wasn't a critique. It's not a critique, it's an observation. His observation was, is that if a person does not experience the feeling at the right time, they'll feel it at the wrong time. You know, we say, I'm just jumping around a little bit, but we just came off a family that was sitting mourning. You know, it's very common. I've seen this, that people that are in mourning are not mourning during Shiva. They're not. You can't force a feeling. They're doing the halachas. They're going to be mourning. But they won't be during Shiva. You can't escape that phase but everyone is wired differently, and that's life, and there's nothing wrong with that. People should not force it even more. It's not going to work. It's going to be. It's going to go the opposite. You know, feel whatever you feel. Be honest with your feelings. Go sit to shiva, and then if you feel the sadness, cry it out, talk it out. And if you don't, it's not the end of the world. It's just the way you feel. You can't force feelings. So, anyways, this guy's and the Rebbe Rashab made that statement, and Hasidim spoke a lot about this statement and how true it is. And how great it is. No, it's in the ideal world, and we're not living in the ideal world. You would exactly feel Rosh Hashanah on Rosh Hashanah. Good for you. You would exactly feel uh, Yom Kippur on Yom Kippur. And you would uh, feel the joy on the time of joy. But we're not living in a perfect world. So this chassid at least woke up on Simchas Torah, but he was unable to have the joy of Simchas Torah without feeling the tshuva of Yom Kippur. And that's the point that I want to make from that story. In other words, he was coming to the joy. But before a Jew will experience joy, there are two steps that must come before. Joy can be defined as transcendence. There isn't a greater transcendent experience that you mamish. Joy. You can say it's the highest level. Simcha. Vaharaya, even the secular world, as it's repeated gechazet a million times, I think it's in the beginning of the Constitution that you all were bestowed by God with the rights to what? To the pursuit of uh, happiness. Like, that's what people want there. They want to be happy. Okay, how do we get there? How do we get to the pursuit of happiness? So it, the model that we have is davening and learning. Davening and learning. Let me give you another great introduction for davening and learning. Listen to these words. King Solomon said that God says towards God's wife, and we are God's wife, that I have placed you the way Pharaoh would place his horses when he would go to battle. 
Now, how did Paroi, who was a great strategist, organize his horses when he went to battle? So the Zoyer expounds, and there's many Maimari Hasidas explaining it, that he would first, as he's going out to battle, place the female horses in the front and the male horses behind them. And they are weaker, they're smaller. But once they entered battle, he would quickly flip it around and he would have the male horses in the front and the female horses in the back. The pshat is not on the zoyer. The pshat is, is that the males are running after the females. So when you're going to battle for the horses to go with a lot of enthusiasm, he placed the female horses in the front. But the moment you enter battle, you want to have the stronger ones in the front. He figured out how to quickly switch them around and then nebuch, the male horses, are stuck in the battle and they're in the front line and whatever will be, will be. And that's that. But the Zoyer goes in a whole different direction. The Zoyer says that words are our horses. These are great concepts. Words are our horses, meaning a horse is just a behemoth. A horse is just a horse, a dumb horse. But the horse will get you to places that you would never be able to get on your own. The horse is the old car. So words have a power not only to communicate what you think or what you feel to your fellow, words that we say take you on a journey. My words were created by God to be able to take me on a journey. I'm writing on my words. And I'll give you examples of that in a moment. And you have male words and female words, says the Zoyar. Female words are the words of prayer and male words are the words of Torah. What does that mean? Push it. Torah is God's words. We're saying, but it's God's words. God also wants to come to us. God wants to have a relationship with us. And how does God do it? By communication. How is God communicating to me? People ask, I don't hear God talking to me. No, God is talking to me. You have to just open up the book. God said these words. Open up the Chumash. Open up Arambam. Open up any part of Torah. It's God in the present talking to you. And by the way, that's why going back, people in the Igris are going way back. You want to know what does God want from me? Open up a book. People used to do it with the Chumash. Like what... What is God telling me? I don't know what God is telling me. Well, people can try to extrapolate from nature, from Ashgach HaPratis. Nothing wrong with that. My reality is God talking to me. Emes. God speaks through nature. God speaks on a much deeper level to Jews through the Torah. And the Rebbe lived with this. The Rebbe felt that whether it's Chitas, whether it's Ramam, or whether it's your own choice to learn today this piece of Gemara. It's not just learning something that was written many, many thousands of years ago. It's God talking to you now. What is God telling me today? A chassid will say, well, what Torah did I learn today? And understand that Torah, not only as the halacha or the history or whatever part of Torah, it's mamish God talking to you, to your personal circumstance, situation, doubts, which thinking people are always doubtful, that's a sign of intelligence. People that are unintelligent are very, very courageous. Children are courageous. They'll just cross La Cienega. That doesn't come from courage. It comes from the courage that is a birth of no seichel. Which is why younger people do what appears to be very courageous things, but it's very foolish things. They're not, they didn't think it through. So when you start to think and to judge and to weigh, you have doubts of what does God want. The Torah is God's words God is writing to us in the words of Torah. And prayer, even though I didn't write the words, it was man-written words with divine inspiration. The Anshe Knesset wrote the If you want to talk to God, the words of prayer is you trying to get close to God. And the constant debate that you have everywhere is which one should come first. And the model of the mimer that I'm quoting from, it's a mimer from the Alter Rebbe, quoting the Zoyar, quoting a verse in the Shirashirim, that God does like Pari does, that the female horses come before the male horses, explains the Alter Rebbe, explaining the Zoyar. That means that in our quest of really getting closer to God, of becoming more spiritual, the right order is not first Torah and then prayer, but it should be first prayer and then Torah. Or using this in my metaphor that if a person wants to know what does God want from me today? 
don't just open the book for you to be able to hop what God is telling you. Say one capital till and before. Daven before. Say words of prayer. Understand what you're saying. At least vaguely understand what you're saying. And the kavana should be, I want to get close to God. And, and Chabad Hasidus speaks about this so much that just hearing words of wisdom is really not enough. Not only is it not enough, but you know, tr- the culture of Hasidim is, is that when we see a great scholar, we're very skeptical about the scholar. Not only don't we have the awe and the reverence, I'm speaking to Emes, that the other groups have, you know, the great Talmud Chachem, the great Rosh Hashiva, the great scholar, people rise and they stand and they give him tremendous honor. We, we're cautious. What's our caution? Our caution is, is that if a Jew has tremendous amount of wisdom and knowledge without the first step, which is the step of prayer, then that wisdom and knowledge will make that person arrogant. And it's going to not only not connect that person more to God, it's going to actually make that person farther away from God. And really, that's part of the cultural machlik um, between Hasidim and non-Hasidim. That's a big part of it. Just to be honest about it, is that, is that the non-Hasidim feel that we don't venerate the scholar enough. And they're so right, because it's not only that we don't venerate the scholar, that we, are, we hold that if the scholar doesn't first daven, and I'll tell you what davening means in this context, then the scholarship is poison. The greatness in the Rebbe, the, great, the Rebbe happened to be the greatest scholar of the generation, but that was an add-on bonus that we had. And most, and, and the Misnagdim claimed, and they're probably right, that the great Hasidic masters did not assume that position because of their scholarship. It was never that you know more then you're qualified. Never. Davening. Let me tell you, to encapsulate davening in this context, humility. Humility. Bittle. Because when we talk to God, if we really talk to God, what will happen is that the person will become very humbled. When you want to understand and you understand, you become very arrogant. I'm not speaking about the novice, but that's what happens. And there's a health to that confidence. When you want to understand and you go and you spend 10 years learning and you end up on the other side of that with a big diploma and you, have, you, you are ordained to be this great judge, you will have a certain amount of haughtiness. And if you don't have then there's something extraordinary about you. And, and, and Hasidim were, you, were, were specialized in that. And they remained humble. And they remain humble because from the outset they never place scholarship as the center of their connection to God. Prior to scholarship was prayer. Think about it. When you think about going in to, to ask a bracha. So until today, the non-chassid will go to the great Rosh Hashiva, who was the greatest Torah scholar. And it's beautiful. I'm not saying this in any, God forbid, derogatory way. The chassid will go to the tzaddik. And the tzaddik will have nothing to do with this person. Zero. And if you can describe, okay, so what makes the person a tzaddik? Humility. And I want to speak about devoida. What is a devoida? Devoida is a bee. A bee is a non-kosher creature. And not only that, the bee per se stings. The bee is an unpleasant creature. But the bee is an unpleasant creature. But what service does the bee provide? The bee gives us honey. It's a very big thing. Simcha, transcendence, elevates the person. That's the last step. The first step is humility. Humility humility means that I am a bee. I'm a stinger. I am not, I'm not arrogant by thinking that I am. No, I'm not. I know all of my faults. doesn't matter because it's Bechal not about me. So let me have my faults. It's irrelevant. I'm here to be in service of someone else. I'm here for a mission greater than me. I'm here to serve God. And even in my service of God, I never elude myself to think that I'm anything more than a bee as a metaphor. Or another metaphor, wicks. Think about it. What happens to the wick when it serves the light? It gets burnt. There's no transformation to the wick. Wick is another symbol that there's something 
that is allowing itself to be fabrent for the greater good, to bring light for the world. Like even she ended up being a shefetis with all of the halachic issues. She was a great scholar, no doubt. But there were other great scholars. What made her unique and the role model that, 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 that Lapidus has, Aishas Lapidus, that Tavoida has, is that her scholarship was secondary. And Dafka, because of that, when she then opened up a book and she gave a judgment, everyone accepted what she said. Not because she proved to the others that her wisdom is greater. Could be she also had that. It was something greater than that. It's because prior to her being the great scholar, she was, she was a devoida. She was the Aishas Lapidus. She provided, she, she, she had the concept of bitum. She humbled herself for the greater good. Which is phenomenal. And that's exactly what Hasidus says, that the, the lesson of all that is that if a Yid wants to feel closer to God, not Torah, and then Tefillah, and then Simcha. What I just mentioned is the easier path. I think for many people, learning is exciting. Davening is very difficult. Davening is very humbling because most people don't get davening. I don't feel it. It's a burden. I'm not saying that everyone enjoys learning, but at least in my experience, I'm always around people that love learning. If you understand and there's an insight, aha, now I know. Davening is difficult. Davening is very humiliating. Certainly humbling. Because if you're standing and you're standing and you're trying and you're after davening for 50 years, you, you have to be honest. Am I feeling anything? No. Oh my God. I think people who learn for 50 years, they got somewhere. They can definitely say, most people, you know, I, 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 I took a hachlata to learn chitas good, any person, and they learned it good. You know what? In five years, they'll know a lot more. Some people will know it by heart. Some people will know very little. They'll know more. I think all learning, you can measure success in davening, 99% of us, if they're honest, I'll tell you that the same davening they did 50 years ago, the same thing. At best, they pronounce all the words good. At best. And if they have a spiritual experience, it won't necessarily happen during davening. It can happen when you're looking at nature. It can happen when you're riding the bus. It can happen sometimes when you're davening. It's a lot harder. Talking. It's hard to stay focused. Huh? It's hard to stay focused. So hard to stay focused. And it's hard it's to... Like- any, it's like a meditation, and when you're meditating, Mamish. your brain—it's normal. The brain oh, a hundred percent. It's very—it's very humbling. It's very—it's very—it's very difficult. It's very important. In other words, if people would have felt davening, uh, then everything else in Yiddishkeit would be so much easier. The previous Rebbe was so wrote so much about it about how important it is for kids and schools that they should daven with the. At least, even in a shul, even on our levels, to daven loud, to sing, even though it's the lowest of the lowest, doesn't matter. You, you, got, you got to make it alive. Because if a person loses their life in davening, then the connection to God is very, very compromised. Very, I'm not saying they can't have it. And that's all of us. That's our whole generation. That's our whole generation. And, 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 and the beauty of davening amongst many other things in this context is that when you when you fill your mind with wisdom to make sure that you understand what God is telling you you know in our in our world where people let's say they were going to open up a Igris Kodesh two people can read the same letter that will understand two completely different things why and everything what's, what, what, is, what is this telling me Everyone has a different takeaway. The takeaway is not because one person understood different. For sure, it's because one's step number one, the female horse, the talking to God is different. The way I talk to God is the way I'm going to hear God talking back to me. Like in any conversation. If you talk to your fellow in a disrespectful way, that's more or less what you're going to hear back. Unless the other fellow is the greatest tzaddik. And how long does that last for? And if you speak to the other person in a good way and you want to connect, then you'll hear the connection back. We initiate by davening to God. And afterwards, we learn Torah. And then we come to Simchas Torah. And that Jew was unable to feel the joy. And this is a nice thing. At least he was now getting the first step. 
the introspection, the humbling oneself to God, which expressed itself by crying. And after that, then he'll get enlightenment and then he'll get transcendence. Simcha is the highest level. Simcha is already Ruach HaKodesh, the great tzaddikim. You have to be in a level of Simcha to be really divinely inspired. You can understand without being a, a very joyful. But it all begins on the Avoid of Tefillah. And that, and, that was, and that was the Voidah. So the people that transform themselves, she's not talking to such people. Could be she personally did. Fakert, she was speaking to people that are still bees. Hasidah speaks about it. You can sting. We're, we're not perfect. We should just acknowledge that. We should be humble. And we should yearn to get close to God the way we are. And she was a shefetis. That means that she, was a, she learned a lot of taita, which is something which is so important. Unlike people thought that, you know, women used to learn less taita as much as they learned right now, but the women were never out of the learning of taita because how can you keep the mitzvahs without learning taita? And the Rebbe definitely emphasized the importance of upping the, the content that women learn. The Rebbe wanted for women to learn Gemara not making them greater scholars. That also, it was secondary. That's another way that we connect to God, is hearing the word of God to us. And we're living in a whole new generation. You go back a few hundred years before Beis Yaakov, most women were much less learned, unless you merited to be born into a family where everyone was scholars. And there were families of women scholars, huge, going all the way back to Moses. But if you weren't born in that, then you didn't have access to. And not only that, but nowadays... In every school, they keep on upgrading. They keep on upgrading the the Torah that's being taught to the women, just like it's taught to the men. And just like by the men, equal to the woman, just to be aware of this: that without first being a devoida, then if anything, you're going to get information, and you're not going to get closer to God. And the goal is not to get information. Better disinformation than shtusim. But that's not. We're not pursuing knowledge. We're not knowledge seekers. That's the Eitz Hadas, they say. Eitz Hadas, what's, why was it called the first sin? was called the Eitz Hadas. Isn't Das a good thing? Eitz Hadas, the answer is no. That if your goal is just to be uh, Das, all you need is to become uh, informed. That's not our goal in life, is not to become a scientist. Our goal in life is to be connected to God. And part of that is hearing God's words. And God's words is filled with enlightenment. But for you to be makabal those words, you daven, and then you learn, and then you're zoicha to the simcha. So the Voira is Eishas Lapidus. She was the one that burnt herself. Or she, she symbolizes the Jew that's humbling myself. I'm keeping myself little. A wick never becomes big. If I cared, the wick was, it's going gonna, gonna to remain small. When the candle starts burning, it's gonna, if it's not needed, it's going to burn it up. There's no excess wick. The fire burns it up. And the wick is there for that. The wick is only there for what it's needed for. It has to be a little bit above the wax and that's it. Little. Aceous Lapidus. Any questions? Maybe davening is also difficult because it's like in place of the karbanas, so it's not even really what we're me- we're missing out on the karbanas, right? Like well, we're, it's really we're meant to be. Well, let's go to karbanas. sacrifice. Let's go to the wick. What is a sacrifice? What sacrifice are we doing when we daven? For me, the biggest sacrifice is that, is that most people are not in the mood of davening. And you have other options that, that, that instantaneously will, will, will uplift you. Even music. I'm not talking about doing something that's kosher. Maybe not a mitzvah, kosher. So you, you, you shutting everything out, like you said, to focus is a tremendous sacrifice. That's the carbon part. And, and we're not good at it. And that's very humbling. Especially if we're trying it for so many years. But I guess that shows us what we're missing out on. Like, we're really missing out on Karanas. Like, because davening, like, it's not really what we're meant to be doing. Okay, let me, yeah. let me, I agree with you. Let me, let me say like this. Let me just uh, compliment what you're saying is that when the Beis HaMikdash will be built and made that happen today, and you and I will bring Karbanos, we should not elude ourselves to think that the bringing of the carbon will be like, uh, let's say, eating matzah. No, we're not gonna ju- it's not just about getting the animal and, and going to the base and Migdosh and have the animal. There's going to be many parts of that mitzvah that will be extremely humbling. I think even on the practical sense, did you ever walk uh, a lamb? 
Can you imagine taking a lamb to the base of Migdash and the, uh, you know, it was very humbling to daven by the Rebbe, not because we were very spiritual, but because there were so many people in there. And all of your nice brand new Yantav suit and brand new hat would get smashed. And, 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 and it was just a humbling experience. You know, the Rebbe actually told certain people who felt that they made mistakes in the past and they were looking like for a tikkun, even though normally the Rebbe didn't focus that much on the tikkun, there were certain people that the Rebbe said that when I blow the shoifer, you should stand in front of the bima. And let me tell you something, the crowd control, I mean, now there's no crowd control. Standing in front of the bima by the Rebbe's tikkias broke you. You didn't go to the hospital, but it was, it was a very humbling experience. Begashmis, I think there was, there was many humbling steps that we're going to undergo by bringing an animal. It's going to humble people. Even by kapodis, the people that have the schus, that the chicken does what chicken needs to do when it's on top of the hat. I'm not talking about on top of the shekel that's worth $8 million, but a hat, it's very humbling. It's like, it, like, it humbles the person. I'm not focusing on that part. I'm just speaking about that, that there has to be something about the carbon that is connected to this theme of becoming very humble. I think when people go to a, to a lecture, they don't walk out feeling humbled. They heard something new, hopefully. Aha. I can learn the mime. The gives us mime and learning it. It's nice. It's good information. Okay, that's the Seder. First davening. And then you'll hear. When I heard it the first time, I was uplifted. It's good to know. You know, why is it that you can open up the book, and, but still I have certain, what do I need to do today? God is talking to me. I'm just deaf. Why am I deaf? I'm learning Torah. Why am I not hearing? Because I didn't daven good. Daven good. And then you'll hear from the Torah what God is telling you today what to do. At least that's the structure. That's the model. That's the theory. It's, it, it doesn't humble. Learning lifts you up. Davening humbles. Not in an unhealthy way. In a very healthy way. In a very healthy way. Stay humble. Bringing a carbon in the base of English is going to be a humbling experience. It's going to be funny also. It's going to be a funny, funny... Imagine if your lamb escapes you. Just imagine a few hundred thousand people chasing their animals. And they want to be respectful in the base of English. Like, go figure that out. Do women go do it? Or the sure. No, women can do it. They don't have to. Do women do it? Women doesn't ever Sure she has to, but she doesn't have to be present. Neither does a man. She doesn't have to be there. She can send it with someone else. This is not a male-female thing. And children? And children after bar mitzvah, sometimes they have to bring a carbon, sure. So before that, they don't have an obligation? No, but they ask chinuch. Mm-hmm. Just, just walking an animal is a humbling experience. If you have to bring a cow, <laughs> forget about a little lamb. That, that's also humbling. So it's an out-of-pocket, it's, it's an experience. It's an experience of bittle. Not unhealthy bittle. It's a daily experience? Daily experience. How could that sustain the amount of Jewish people that there are? What do you mean by that? The Visa Mikdash, it can only hold so many people at once, right? Okay. So what do you do? You make an appointment? Like I'm saying, on the no, you, no, you'll... You, you, just show up? Just show up. Let's see if they're going to make crowd controls. We'll find out. We'll modernize it. I'm trying to envision it already. Listen, when the Rebbe was here to go to shul, to daven, no one needed to make an appointment. Sometimes it was comfortable. Sometimes it was not. And the uncomfortable part of it had had a very inner divine reason. It's not like people feel like, I wish I can go to shul and I can have my comfortable seat. Amen. There's a time and place for that. But the fact that Bahashgacha protests around old Sadiqim because of the quantities of people, it was never a comfortable experience. That's a healthy amount of humbling oneself that's connected to the spirit of the tefillah. And in the base, a carbon will be the same thing. There's going to be humbling steps. Not humiliating in a bad way. Humbling. I, I thought about kaparas because I see that by kaparas. Everyone is doing it together. So there's a certain of camaraderie. Everyone is going to have smelly hands and everyone in this. And then this guy's chicken. I just saw why you run, you're chasing the chickens and you're running after your chicken. It's just, it's, people are laughing. They're not laughing down. It's just, it's a humbling. You can't even hold on to your chicken. 
it's, it's, it's a good funny. It's a, it's, a, it's a humbling funny. The way I see the base English will be that on steroids. On steroids. All of the proper people, I don't know how they're going to go in there. It, the floor won't necessarily always be as clean as people think. I mean, you're talking about there's going to can be uh, tens of thousands, average tens of thousands of animals. Would you ever in such an environment? But you're in God's house. You've got to be respectful. Go, just try that. Do you think that in shul, when you have Kanai Nahara, 80 kids running around, and, and, you're, and, this is, and I'm trying to daven, it's very humbling. Like, go focus. And everything is working against you. I think in the base of Migdash, it's going to be that a lot more. But on the other hand, we're going to see something that we didn't see now. Rabbi, I may ask a question? Yep. Um, hi. Hi. Um, so I, this is good to see you. Um, so this is actually going back to something you were talking about earlier in, in the class, which is around uh, the importance of davening or prayer, um, sometimes even more so than Torah. Yes. Um, and my question for you is, um, what are your thoughts on like creating customized personal praying rituals? Like, for example, I have my own way in which I, I pray, and I'm wondering if it's specific, the Hebrew, uh, pro, you know, book and the davening and the nusach, or if it's okay to have your own personal way that you daven and pray. It's important to have both, and the humbling of prayer will come to you a lot more during the Hebrew part, specifically because it's that much more difficult to get anywhere, and that in itself is a very humbling experience versus your personalized prayer that should be incorporated in the Shemayna Esrei, which then it's a lot easier to feel connected, but it won't demand any type of burning your wick or humbling yourself because it's a much, it's a, it's a much easier platform to get connected to God. It's like if the goal would be only just to feel close to God, then davening should be here by the beach. Many people say, when I go out in the forest, I feel close to God when I'm in nature. But you're putting me in a shul, especially if it's not that beautiful, it's that much more harder to get connected to God. And the answer is yes, correct. Now go in the shul and try to connect to God. That's So you know. you're saying, oh, sorry. So you're saying like the, to do both, like, because my prayer ritual is not connected with the Nisach, with God, with the Hebrew at all. It's Yet. like a whole different type of experience that I do so you're saying I should do both or I should or I sh- should do both like, you should do both you should do both we learned we learned about it a lot even in halacha people in the Shemayna Esri there are certain places where a person is encouraged to speak their own words but the framework should be in the in the text that was written around 2500 years ago and it's not just in spite of the fact that it's harder to feel inspired that's part of the purpose there are certain moments in life, like if you were to have a student, a good, a good coach, sometimes the coach would, would, uh, would show the student or would inspire the student to do something that they could do. And sometimes there is a time and place to give a job, to give a task to a student that the student cannot do. It's completely beyond, beyond. And the upside there and the right balance is that the student will feel humble and not arrogant. Not everything, I did it! You have to have, I did it, and you have to have, oh my God, there's so much that I can't do yet. And there's, there's a beauty to that. And, and, and I think that in the Yiddishkeit of Golos, maybe the hardest mitzvah for most people is davening. It's very humbling. It's a humbling experience. And we keep on going at it. And that humility itself keeps the person in, 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 in a place where then when they learn Torah, they're going to hear God a lot more then if they're going to walk around with the other side of the coin, and there is a place to feel confident and to feel I can do it and I did it and I'm successful, there is a place for that. The downside of only having that is, is that the person might be enlightened, but they will never have an experience with God. They might have an experience of something that's greater than just the tangible. They might have, let's say, a spiritual experience, but they will never have a godly experience. Thank you. That was awesome. Thanks. You're welcome. All right. So Thank you, Rabbi. You're very welcome. It's my it's my Devora. It's the third birthday today. Hi out. So Mas- I'm wow. talking about Devora. 
Mazel tov for you. If she would be a boy, she would have an upsharanish. But she's not a boy. She's lighting Shabbos candle. I take it back. Here we go. You see, I'm just thinking like a guy. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for hosting. My pleasure. Mazel tov. Sure. Um, like, what rabbi would you recommend, like, a starter? Like, just a Shmona Esrei. Shmona Esrei, and and try to the best of your ability to stay focused from the beginning until the end. And should I be trying to think of the English words? Yeah, like, sure. The meaning of it. Right. I, when we gave our our Tfila class, I think that the the. the my understanding is is that sometimes pray in the Hebrew and if you don't yet understand it sometimes pray in the English once you do that back and forth then even when you'll pray in the Lashon HaKodesh you'll have at least a general understanding of what you're saying the biggest challenge of davening is is that we're talking to God so like when you talk to another person you are aware of their presence hopefully and when we're talking to God it's not easy to remain aware of God's presence. It's a very difficult exercise. And it's very humbling. I just think from the base I make this, it won't be hard to be humbled. It'll be easier, but it's going to be something that will be humbling about it. People are coming with sin offerings. That's humbling. And hey, what's your sin all about? Right. Yeah. Isn't that embarrassing? They do yes. it in front of each other? Like, yes. Or someone's there every day with a sin. Yeah. If you learn it, yeah, because, because there's male animals and female animals, and if you learn it a little bit, you have a general understanding of, of what they're there for. What they're there for. And then you have those nosy people that say, ah, let me guess. Right. And then if you're there every day for the same thing. Oh, my God. It's going to be, I just see it, you know, amongst Hasidim, at least what I witnessed is that is that is that there was a, a healthy amount or a joyful amount of, of humility. It wasn't a oh my god, I feel like I was embarrassed, at least amongst the guys. It's like but, we're just we're just, just simple people, we're doing our best, we're very limited, there's a lot of growth and everyone acknowledges and we're all on that same level. It's good. We keep each other humble. Right, but there's gonna be no Yitzhahara, so then there won't be sin offerings or there still will be. Once there won't be a Yitzhahara at that point, uh-huh. then people won't sin, correct. Okay, so then no more bad. It wasn't okay. doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna happen right. right away. Right. Um can a woman be a judge or was Devorah an exception? Okay, so that's the big topic. So we spoke about it in our first intro. It's good to know about this. There's a machlekis whether she actually was the judge. Mm-hmm. Could be. Or you needed to have halachic judges, mm-hmm. but before they would judge, they would ask her her opinion. And because of her high level of divine inspiration, Mamash, I want you to know the Rebbe was that way. The Rebbe did not act as a rav. Mm-hmm. The Rebbe would not answer halachic questions, but Rabbanim would inquire of the Rebbe, what's the right approach over here? Mm-hmm. And because of his ruach hakoidish, because of his being at tzaddik, they would take his approach and then they would make sure that it fits within the framework of Allah. Right, makes sense. But she's still called a judge, so... Because the name judge was used for the... For the, for the it wasn't only one. Mm-hmm. She probably was the greatest one. Mm-hmm. The greatest one of women of, of, or of all of, the no, judges? No, of her generation. And maybe uh-huh. even all the judges that... There wasn't one leader. Right. It was like a title. It was a title given to the people that served as the mm-hmm. teachers and as inspirational role models. But it's interesting because she couldn't be a witness. She couldn't be a judge either. She couldn't be a judge. Okay. No. Not, 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 you know, she did not sit in a courtroom and, and render right. judgments. Right. Okay. It was the, the judges, the Torah scholars, they would go and ask her, do you, what are you, this is what we guidance. came to, did they get guidance? Right. Like a Rebbe, right. she was a Rebbe. You have this, you always had this, and this, this type of Rebbe role always was by women also, always. Boy, mamish. When you had such a woman, people would ask the woman, she would tell you whether you're, you're, you're on or you're off. But we don't have that, we haven't had that for a long time, like a woman figure. I, I so, dis- I so disagree with you, and from where I come from, I have not, I've seen very much the opposite. I don't think that in my generation, I grew up, let's say in the 70s, that they, that they were public, but it's budget, not true. Even, even, even beginning in the, in the external structure of having, let's say, the rabbi of a community. Every rabbi that I know, in the big communal issues, would consult with his wife. 
Let's begin with the Rebbe. It was known. The Rebbe said it. The Rebbe says he never came out with a campaign before talking it through with the Rebbetzin, and her job was to be the devil's advocate. He didn't use those words. He wanted someone to challenge, and she was extremely scholarly. So whether it's a halachic challenge, whether it's a hashkafic challenge, whether it's a practical challenge, and only if he was able to, that means that sometimes he was unable to turn her around, would he come out with it in public. That means that the guidance that he got, his talking board was only the Rebbetzin. He didn't have the people whom he can consult with. His only consult with was with his wife. Also, she, her job was almost to do all the research for him. How did he know what he knew? And actually, she worked in the library. She was his source of information. The Maral of Prague, we know also that all of his halacha responses were never sent back before his wife looked it over. And we know the corrections that she made. There's a tradition. Her name was Freda, Fredo. She was extremely learned. He considered her more learned than him. But these are not exceptions. I'm saying. The Maral of Prague, not only she was more knowledgeable than him. Yeah. Sorry, it was the Maharal of Prague? The Maral of Prague, like you hear, the Maral of Prague's wife was, a, was, was the greatest scholar of that time. Rashi's daughters were the greatest scholars of that time. Rashi didn't have sons, so he taught his daughters. Like he would teach his sons. And they taught their sons. All of the great uh, authors of Toysfus, they were students from their mothers. It didn't, it's not exceptions. The, it, what's changing in our generation is, is that these women are taking a more public, um, more people are aware of it. But whoever was the deciders, what do you think? Whoever needed to make a communal decision. Until today, what do you think? The guy doesn't speak it over with his wife? It doesn't exist such a thing. If there's a man that doesn't talk it through with his wife, he'll never do divine, divine providence. He'll never reach a position where he has real um, decision power. It's not going to happen that way because it's going to be bad decisions. You have to have that couple. Always. When the Rebbe's wife passed away, the Rebbe wanted to know whether he's allowed to sit on his chair. Can you imagine that you can cry? He asked to Rabbanim. As opposed to what? Him, him, him resigning from being a Rebbe. Oh, wow. Because he didn't have his wife. In other words, I want to ask you if you can define humble means to consult and to be embarrassed. Not embarrassed. Humble means being humble. I don't know the best. Being humble. Lowering yourself, maybe. Like, Not being arrogant. Well, God gave me a talent. If you're smart, you should know that you're smart. Or if you're, if you have any talent, you should know your talent. But you should know that it's a God-given talent. You'll remain humble. We have role models for this. That Everson was the most humble woman. Mamish. She did not need any outside valid zero. And she had a big role. But as not, it's more than that. You have I don't know, every every group by us in Lubavitch, I would say the most influential at Everson was Menucharachel. She became the Lubavitch at Everson of the whole Israel. You have to understand, you have to know, she, all of the Rebbes would go and consult with her. Like the Voida, it's the same thing. She was a, she, they considered her to be the Jew who's the most connected to the what God wants. When they would consult, all the Rebbes went to her. When she passed Rebbe's away, like or just any? Oh, no, all of the great Sadiqim that lived in Israel, they made for her on, on her oil like you make for a Rebbe, till today, if you go to Hebron. Go to Menucharachal. I went to Davin there to buy Menucharachal. Menucharachal was the. Uh, it's old things. Given our intro, it's, it's that the title rabbi is. You know, it's who's going to be the one standing up in front of the pulpit. That was something that we have a problem with in the, in the religious context. Not in the leadership, in the religious context. But as far as real leadership, real, to give guidance, it's the most qualified to always end up giving guidance. Always. If someone never saw that with a woman, that's because they were living in a place where either culturally the women were not afforded that place, which is wrong, or because it happened to be that the, the one that was the most qualified happened to be a man. It's nothing to do with a man or a woman. You think about your parents, think about your home, it all begins over there. Like who really gave the guidance? Every home is different. Every home is different. I'm sure in every home it's more or less a mixture, but like sometimes there's one is more dominant than others, depends on what area. Who decides where the kids go to school? That, that, these are the big questions. 
well, the, the, if, every, if they both agree, then it's together. But what happens if they have different opinions? Then hopefully, if both want what's best, then every couple will eventually understand that either I have the best or my wife has the best. It's going to be, you know that, not out of arrogance. Not always. Not always you get an answer. You, you connect to Hashem. Oh, that's a very good. A very good. You connect to God. The answer is, I'm saying the model. A, the answer should be coming from the Torah. What Torah? The Torah, in other words, if a Jew learns Torah every day, or they learn Torah every week, they should not, like when a person goes to shul to hear the Torah, what are they doing? They should understand what's happening. God wants to tell you something. There's a challenge. The challenge is that God is not physical. God doesn't have a mouth. And our ears cannot pick up so you know what God did? God gives me the Torah. Let's go to Shul. go to Shul on Shabbos. What's happening there is God is trying to tell you something. When you hear the Torah, you're not oh, the portion of Ba Mishpatim, and you're trying to catch the reader's mistake. That's not what you should be doing. You, you should be you should be trying to understand God is Mamish now telling you something. Problem is, I'm learning. I don't hear it. First of all, many people don't, don't look at it that way. Like, why do you think by the Igris people find answers? Because when they open it up, they're not academically trying to read a letter that they ever wrote then. No, the, the approach is, I want to know what is the Rebbe telling me for my specific problem. A Yid should approach every part of Plato that way. And even having that approach, that's this whole concept. That first comes the Voida. First Talk to God with humility. Be humble. Understand that it's not about you. Like a bee. Like that, that bee is the best model. Bee is a non-kosher animal. There were many Hasidim that celebrated this virtue. There was, a, there was someone who had a very gifted talent in orator. He was a great speaker. So the third Rebbe told him that I want you to go around and you should be the one teaching Hasidus. And he did that. And he was very good at it. And whenever he came to a new city, there were hundreds of people that came to listen from him. Now today you would say, wow, that's great. You feel like you're a success. He told the Rebbe, I, I want to quit because I'm feeling arrogant. I'm becoming arrogant. So many people are honoring me. And what the Rebbe told him in English is that arrogance is horrible and you're going to go to hell for that, but keep on teaching Torah because the world needs you. That's a very typical Lubavitcher approach. Even if it makes you an onion. Right? Even if it, he, uh, onion, you should become. But Hasidus, you're going to review. An onion is the example in the refined metal. It stinks. But it's beneficial for the others. So yeah, you're an onion. You're arrogant, you're an onion. Don't think you're anything better than that. But the mission will happen. That's a beautiful Chabad Hashkafic way of looking at life. That means do what you need to do. Embrace your talents. Use them to God. Try to stay humble. And at least be aware that if you're not humble, oh my God, that I'm an onion. At least acknowledge that. Accept that you're an onion. And he did just that. And the whole life, he needed to struggle to remain humble. The more successful, the more the harder it became to remain humble. So if somebody is good in something, should say, that's one is from Hashem. Yeah. That's and they should do it. They should do it even if they're arrogant. Just do it because the world benefits. And then work on yourself to remain humble. By knowing it's not yours. Someone gifts you a beautiful car and you're driving around. It's not yours. To boast with it is foolish. Like, who are you kidding? It's not yours. But if, if we say, because we're talking, we create, so saying, I don't deserve it. Don't say I don't deserve it. <laughs> it's, not about, it's not about I to begin with. It's not about I deserve or not. It's not about I. That's the word. It's not about I. Even my trying to connect to God is not about me being connected to God. Is in order for me to fulfill what God wants from me, I need to know what God wants from me. What does God want from me? Not in an arrogant, I, I want to be in service. I want to be in God's service. Okay, what does God want from me? God is giving me the Torah. I'm not hearing what God wants from me. I'm hearing generally God wants me to keep kosher. What does God want from me right now? So says Hasid is Dav. I, in davening, you know, it's not the word of God. I know but if you daven and you become humble, then you'll hear the word of God talking to you. And then you'll be filled with joy. Good. Thank you. We're lucky. We have these ideas. Yeah, Hasidish yeah. ideas. These are good ideas. Yeah, Just practical.